You go ahead and as you're grabbing a seat, turn to 1 Timothy chapter 3. Uh, we're not quite finishing chapter 3 up today. We're going to go verses 8 through 13. Um, and just as a, a quick recap, Timothy is in Ephesus um, to help make sure that the church, at a, uh, the Ephesian church, is in order. Uh, and, and we think of being in order in terms of uh, Timothy is to hold the church to, to make sure that it is holding to the truth of God's word. Uh, to make sure that they're holding to faith in Christ. And then also in terms of how the church is to function when it gathers. Like, how does the church relate to itself? How has God structured the church? Um, and so last week within that, um, we looked at the, the qualifications for pastors or elders or overseers, whatever title you want to give them. Um, with the sense, though, at the same time that, that our desire as a church is not just to, to see one, one person who would say, oh, that person is qualified for, for vocational ministry, but rather we would want to raise an entire church of people who are mature in Christ. Like we would like to see every single individual who is in Christ grow to the fullness of the stature of maturity in Christ, which is what Ephesians chapter 3 tells us. Um, and, and so, uh, I hope when we, when we come in this morning, we start talking about deacons again, that the, the veil doesn't just go over and like, oh, we're talking about a select few group of people. Um, we are talking about, uh, some that are set apart for specific service in the church, but at the same way that we talked about last week with this, these qualifications for pastors, we would notice and recognize that the qualifications that are laid out for deacons in, in verses 8 through 13 are also qualifications and characteristics of mature believers in Christ. Like, this is what we want to see and what we want to disciple into, or in other words, what we want to teach every person in Christ to be doing. This is who they are because of what Jesus has done. And, and, and the heart of all of this in, in the, uh, the letter of 1 Timothy to this point, it would be, if I could maybe summarize it this way, is uh, the aim of, uh, of the church or the people of God is to be a people who are increasingly knowing and loving Jesus and who also make him known wherever they go. Right, so to be a people who are increasingly, ever increasing, like there's never this like this shut off valve at the top. You're like, okay, you reached it now, just you're done, right? So for every believer in Christ, always ever increasing in their knowledge of who Jesus is, but also in their love of Him and in their walking with Him, and then also in this increasing way of radiating or making Jesus known to the world around them. And you would notice that those themes would carry over into any church, anywhere, in any place, any time, right? The, the people of God, the people here at LBC would be people who increasingly know who Jesus is, are increasing all of the time in their love for him, and are increasing in their desire and their ability to make Jesus known everywhere they go, right? Like if we were to boil down the mission of the church, that, that would be a pretty, like if we did that, hey, pretty healthy church. A church that really cares about Jesus and cares about the people around them and within them, right? Um, and so this morning, we're going to look at 
First uh, Timothy chapter three verses eight through thirteen, and like I said, we're it's uh, continuing in this orderly household of how God has set up or desires His church to function. As in verses fourteen through sixteen, which we'll come back again to next week, uh, as as the the bastion of truth or the buttress of truth in the world that is watching. How is the church to relate to the world, and how is it going to be ordered in such a way that that happens? Effectively, so in First Timothy chapter three, he's picking up in verses eight through thirteen, it's on screen for you. Or if you got it, you can follow along, or you can just listen. However, you like to do it. it says deacons likewise must be dignified, not double tongued, not addicted to much wine, not greedy for dishonest gain. They must hold the mystery of the faith with a clear conscience. And let them also be tested first, then let them serve as deacons, if they prove themselves blameless. Their wives, likewise, must be dignified, not slanderers, but sober-minded, faithful in all things. Let deacons each be the husband of one wife, managing their children and their own households well. For those who serve well as deacons gain a good standing for themselves, and also great confidence in the faith that is in Christ Jesus. So we're going to dive like just really deep in here on, on the very first go. So uh, we're going to take the first word, deacons, and we're going to stop right there. Because how many of you go, I know exactly what a deacon is. If you say the word deacon to me, I'm like, yep, I know what you're talking about. Uh, I had never, like, uh, growing up, if you had said to me, what is a deacon? I'd be like, well, it's the Wake Forest basketball team, the demon deacons. Right, like... That would be my only understanding. Like maybe if in the church I would hear the word deacon, but like as far as what is a deacon, no idea. And so it wouldn't do us a lot of good if we if we come into into First Timothy chapter three and verse eight, and, we, and I just assume that all of you know exactly who deacons are or what deacons do or where they come from, right? Like that wouldn't be very helpful for you if we just said, "Hey, this is what your deacons are supposed to be," and you go, "What's a deacon?" It's like, a, it's like a beacon, but with a D. <laughs> which is close to bacon, which would be really cool. Like, let's talk about the qualifications for good bacon. Anyway, we're going to reel that in real quick. Because now you're thinking about, they, hey, after this, a lovely spread of chili, some of which have bacon in them. Okay, that's the quick thing. So, what is a deacon? Bring it back in. So, it's the, the, the word deacon is not one that you would hear anywhere else outside of the church, I don't think. Like, right, you don't, you don't go to Ace and say, hey, where, where are the deacons at? You have those on the shelf? You don't go to Rosar's like, I'll have a side of deacon. Oh, sorry, I went right back to bacon right away. Like, I'm, I'm going to stop that. And you don't hear it anywhere else, right? We don't, we don't use the word. So the word deacon, it comes out, it's derived from a word that is, like the Greek word is diakonos. You can write that down, but you're never going to say it again, so it doesn't matter. What the word deacon means, or the word diakonos means, is servant. So, it's a specific kind. Of, it's not just like a, 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 just a broad term for a servant. Like when Paul uses it, he's using it right here in First Timothy chapter three with a specific kind of servant in mind. And so then we would say, well, okay, what kind of servant, and why would the why why would Timothy know what one of these is, and why would the church in Ephesus know what one is, and why would there be qualifications for them in the church? And so without like totally beating it to death, I want you to go to Acts chapter six. Acts chapter 6, verses 1 through 6 are going to give us the, the basis for like the first time that deacons kind of pop up on the scene of the early church. Uh, and what's interesting is in Acts chapter 6, they're not actually called deacons at that point at all. 
Uh, but they set the stage for who deacons are and what they do, uh, both in the early church and hopefully continuing on into the church today. So a little bit of, of, of context for us as we run into Acts chapter 6. So you know the book of Acts takes place after Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection, and it begins with Jesus' ascension into heaven, right? And he gives his disciples, his apostles, he gives them uh, strict instructions to stay in Jerusalem until the Holy Spirit comes. Right and, and, and they gather, and they're praying in an upper room of a house, and on the day of Pentecost, the Holy Spirit comes and fills every member of the church. Every follower of Jesus is now filled with the Holy Spirit. And Peter, and what's crazy is this first time that it happens, they all start speaking in t- languages that they do not know, because there are people from a Jewish background from all over the world who understand all of those languages, and God in some mysterious way decides, I'm going to let all of them hear the good news of who Jesus is in their native tongue while they're in Jerusalem for this special feast. And they all come to see what's happening, and their initial conclusion is these guys are all super drunk because they're speaking in languages they shouldn't know. And Peter's like, it's 9 o'clock in the morning, not even we start drinking that early. Uh, that's paraphrase. Like, it's not. What you are seeing is a fulfillment of Scripture. And he goes on to preach, and, and it says on the, the, uh, when he, he preaches the first time at Pentecost, Bible trivia, how many people came to know Jesus that day? 3,000, right? So all of a sudden, the church goes from 120 people in the upper room praying to now 3,000 plus people. Just like that. Just just imagine the logistical fun of that. And then it talks about in, in the first five chapters of Acts how day after day, more and more people are being added to the householder. They're coming to faith in Jesus. So then what happens in Acts chapter 6, what is set uh, the stage for right before this is, is that the, the, the early church is caring for itself. Right? There's, there's, uh, for those who have need, they are getting a daily distribution of bread through the church. Like people are bringing things and they are sharing with those who have need. In Acts chapter 6, this is where we're going to pick up. Okay, so you can imagine a, a, a large number of people have come to faith recently. While most of them or all of them are from a Jewish background, they're also coming from a wide variety of, they live in all kinds of different places and they have been added all of a sudden together. So you have two mainstreams of people. You have those who are kind of like, um, like your traditional Jewish background people and then you have the Greek speaking Jewish people, right? And they're all in the church together now. Now imagine this, like, there's like big cultural differences that are now being experienced in the daily thing. So it says, now in these days when the disciples were increasing in number, right? We just talked about some of that, that context. A complaint by the Hellenists or Greek-speaking Jews arose against the Hebrews, which would be the Hebrew-speaking Jews or Christians now, because the Greek-speaking widows were being neglected in the daily distribution of food. Right? So you can imagine, the church comes together, and, and those who have need, the widows who are enrolled in the church, are being provided for, and the Greek-speaking background believers say, wait a minute, all of our widows, the people that were from our community, are being left out. So then, they bring this to the apostles. And notice what happens next. The twelve don't come up with a game plan on their own. They say, it says, and the twelve summoned the full number of the disciples. 
Imagine this big, fun business meeting, but it's a business meeting that is centered on conflict. Right? And they say, the disciples say, it is not right that we should give up preaching the word of God to serve tables. Now imagine if there wasn't any more information after that. Listen, we're not concerned about that, as you were. And everybody still goes away unhappy, and they're going to fight over bread every day for the rest of however long they distribute it. Instead of that, they say, it's not right that we should give up the preaching ministry that God has given to us, but therefore, we, uh, brothers, and, and you could even say, like, that's the full number. So therefore, I, all of you who are gathered here, brothers and sisters, pick out from among you seven men of good repute, full of the Spirit and of wisdom, who we will appoint to this duty. And what they said pleased the whole gathering, and they chose Stephen, a man full of faith and of the Holy Spirit, and Philip, and Prochorus, and Nicanor, and Timon, and Parmenas, and Nicholas, a proselyte of Antioch. These they set before the apostles, and they prayed and laid their hands on them. Uh, and I should have included verse 7, because then the end result is, and the word of God continued to increase, and the number of the disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem, and a great many of the priests became obedient to the faith. Uh, there's this massive hiccup. Mass, like, massive landmine that is just waiting to just like, like, the church is not meeting the needs of everybody that is coming for physical help that the church has assigned to happen. And the apostle's solution was, and I think led by the Holy Spirit, hey, pick seven people who are going to deal with this. And it was fascinating to me, and we're going to look at this as we get into the, the book of First Timothy back again, is that they were called initially to distribute bread and distribute food, and, and in, in, in the disciples' words, to serve tables. And what is fascinating to me right off of the tail of that is when they say these are the, re- the requirements of who you should look for, They didn't say, look among yourselves to the 3,000 plus of you and see who has a background in food distribution. Look among you, the 3,000 plus of you, surely there is somebody with a a pretty decent background in, in logistics. Find those seven people. No, what are the, the three requirements? They need to have a good reputation, they need to be full of the Spirit, and they need to be full of wisdom. To wait on tables. Now, a humbling thought for you and for me. If, if our church had a need, how would we look to fill it? Like in a ministry team setting or in, in, a, in a gap of we go, oh, this, there, there's an oversight. Would we initially look to the pragmatic solution of, oh, I know somebody who has a background in this. They'd be really great for this. Or do we say, let's look for a godly person who seeks the Lord, has a good reputation with people. And we might put that first and foremost, and they say, well, he didn't have any, like, he has no restaurant background. Peter, wait, we have a question. This guy has no, like, he didn't even know. He didn't even know what bread is. He never made it. And he's going to pass it out? But what's interesting is it says that it, it was good to all of the people who heard it. And what's even more fascinating to me is you say you have 3,000 plus people. Numbers being added to constantly. The disciples say, you look among yourselves and you find seven men. Now, I hope 
and hopefully it doesn't say that there's only seven and you need to go through with like a, you know, a needle in a haystack. But isn't it amazing, the second part of this is that they, they had a consensus on the seven people, and it seems like they had a consensus on those seven men pretty quickly. Like, given those three requirements, good reputation, full of the Spirit, and full of wisdom, they're like, I know those, I, I, hey, here's one, here's one, here's one, and all of a sudden you have seven. And then what's even more incredible about this is these seven guys who were chosen to, to wait on tables, if you want to say that, as you walk through the book of Acts, that they were not limited just to waiting on tables. In fact, so Stephen is the first martyr, but he, he, like, he proclaims the gospel to all of the religious leaders in Jerusalem as they're getting ready to stone him. And you look at Philip, another one, who is the one who is sent to uh, out in the middle of the countryside to talk to an Ethiopian eunuch in a chariot who's on his way home, struggling to understand what he has just read in Scripture and going, who is this written about? And Philip is the one who shares the gospel with him, baptizes this Ethiopian guy, and then sends him back on his way, presumably taking the gospel to Ethiopia. One of these seven who is chosen to wait on tables is the one through whom this next window opens. So it's not just waiting on tables, but it's also very clearly not overlooking the tables. Their specific first job is meeting the physical needs within the church. And so with this idea of servants... I want to be really careful here. The first person that these servants or these deacons are responsible to is not the church. The first person that these these deacons serve is first and foremost, they serve the Lord. Right? I mean, because they wouldn't have been chosen in the first place if they weren't full of the Spirit, having a good reputation, and, 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 and uh, showing that they walk in godly wisdom. They are first and foremost given over to the Lord and his service in their lives. And then because of that, that qualifies them in Acts chapter 6 to be servants of the church in this regard. And if I want to like overly just simplify it, and again I'm saying overly simplified because Stephen is, is, is clearly more than just waiting on tables. Philip is more than just waiting on tables in the book of Acts. If we wanted to, to oversimplify it, you go, okay, so what is the difference between uh, elders or pastors and deacons? What's the, the main difference? And I would say the main difference, and again, uh, there's some overlap in this. But the, the, the main purpose of pastors, overseers, and elders is the spiritual instruction and care for the body of believers, right? So, so the spiritual maturation and, and, and growing people to maturity spiritually in the Word of God. That's their primary job. Deacons, on the other hand, their primary work within the church is meeting and facilitating of the physical cares of the church so that the spiritual work of the church can continue. Now, at the same time, you go, well, that seems that it's so, so spiritual and physical. At the same time, if a deacon were to show up to a physical need in, in, the, in the midst of the body, say that there is a broken sink at somebody's house, and the deacon shows up and finds out that there is a spiritual concern, should the deacon or should the, the deacon not give good biblical counsel while they're there if they find out that there's an overlap? Absolutely they should, right? And they should be able to do that. That's why they should be full of the Spirit and of good reputation and full of wisdom. 
Now, same question. If, if a pastor, elder, seer, or elder, overseer goes to a house and there's a broken sink and he's there for spiritual counsel and he realizes that the sink is broken and he has the capacity to fix the sink while he's there, should he or should he not fix the physical problem? He should. All right, so, there's, so it's not just this hard and fast like, oh, whoa, you have a physical issue. You should go see. I can't do anything about that. But the initial thing is physical needs go towards these deacons who free up the spiritual instruction and teaching, proclaiming of the word for the pastors. That doesn't mean that they're completely siloed, but this is their primary work. And you notice as we walk through this that you'll see this bear out in the fact that deacons, a lot of the, the requirements overlap a little bit with the spiritual requirements of pastors. However, deacons nowhere in verses 8 through 13 are said that they have to be able to teach. Whereas pastors have to be able to teach. Otherwise, they are not qualified. Nowhere does it assign or require deacons to be teachers. Okay? That's the one major glaring obvious difference. And what is at stake as we walk through this is, if in Acts chapter 6, if the 12 had said, hey, we have so many physical things, like we need to table teaching and proclaiming the truth so we can sort out all of these physical issues. And they had just put on the shelf, like, we're going we're gonna to walk away from truth for now because we have so many physical issues to happen. What is the great risk there? There is a wholesale abandonment of why the church exists in the first place. The church first and foremost exists to bring people to Jesus and then bring them to maturity in him. Right? At the same time, if the church neglects the physical needs of its body, what is at risk? You may not be able to bring them to spiritual maturity as effectively because there's real physical conflict, real physical issues that are hindering their ability to receive the word. So both are important. However, you, you, you have to have both. You have to have spiritual instruction and physical needs being met. The church cares about the whole person would be another way to say that. Are we a people who care about the whole person? Or we just go, oh, you have a spiritual issue. The church can handle that. You have a physical issue? Let me give you the number for the government. Who are we as a church? When we see physical needs, do we have a heart to meet them? This is going to bear out in this. As we walk through this, the same question we asked last week could be asked of deacons. Well, uh, where do deacons come from? Are they grown on a farm somewhere or are they raised up from within the church? Remember in Acts chapter 6, look among yourselves. Within your midst, who is qualified? And, and, and if we just pump the brakes here for half a second, and, and, and can I just say something, hopefully encouraging to you. I don't know that you realize as a church um, how, how spoiled you are. Uh, that when it comes to looking for biblically qualified deacons, uh, we have a, a lot of people that are like, hey, I think they meet all of these but we don't necessarily need 12 right now. The first church that I served in, uh, it was a small church. Um, but when I looked around, we had no deacons, and, and more devastatingly so, we had no biblically qualified deacons. You go, oh, this isn't good. So then the question is, like, you could ask the question of pastors too. Like, what, what if you're in a place that doesn't have a biblically qualified pastor? What if you're in a place that doesn't have a biblically qualified deacon? Like, what do you do? Do you just go to the next best thing? Well, they hit seven out of eight. They don't hit all eight. 
No. The call then to the people of God is to disciple and raise up people who will biblically qualify. Right? Until such time that you have biblically qualified people, you don't have biblically qualified leadership. And so I say that again to, to your benefit. We as a church here at LBC are, are magnificently spoiled with, with some people who are, are qualified for both of these offices. But let me issue a challenge right on the back end of that. Because we have people that are qualified for these, are we walking in these qualifications and pushing forward to greater faithfulness? Or are we stepping back, hey, we got disciple people, the job is done until such time as we need to do more. How do we view our role in this process of raising up more and more qualified people? So 1 Timothy chapter 3, verse 8. So we just talked about deacons. Deacons are these men who are set aside for special service within the church. Not necessarily that they are doing things that no one else could or would do, but that they are set aside for a special purpose. It says the first qualification is one that has come out over and over and over again in 1 Timothy already. They must be dignified. That's, that's a, a quality and a qualification of the church that Paul is hammering of the church. That he wants the church to be dignified in its conduct. Remember going back to why should they pray for all people in all positions and all backgrounds? So the church can, be, can, can, can live in godliness and dignity in every way. Why should the women dress in a certain way so that they would be dignified? Why should pastors be dignified? Why should deacons be dignified? Like what Paul is saying is the church ought to be godly. It ought to be worthy of respect because they are walking in maturity in Christ. He's not just talking about checking off uh, uh, the, the you dress in a dignified way. He's talking about what is in the inner person. Are they dignified? Are they, are they mature in Christ? First qualification, are they mature in the Lord? And that carries over in a similar way we could say, what was it to be above reproach for the pastor? What does it mean to be dignified or godly for, the, for a deacon? Not double-tongued. Another way we could say it is sincere in his speech. Integrity in what he says. How they speak. I think about how important that requirement right there. Integrity of speech. When deacons are primarily meeting physical needs within the church, and I would say, and according with Acts chapter 6, they are also the front line of putting out conflict within the church. They are on the front foot of realizing where there is potential conflict and putting it into it. How important is it that they say what they mean and don't just double speak to everybody they talk to? Have you ever have you ever been in a spot where two people are at odds with each other? And you're like, hold on, I'll go talk to this person. And you say, like, and you hear from them and say one thing, and you hear it all. And then you were to go to the other person and completely misrepresent what they said. How would that go over? Or how bad would it be if you went to the one side and promised all kinds of things that you could never do, and then went to the same side and promised all kinds of things that you could never do, and then they come together and they're both like, he promised this, and then you're like, um, I did, and I can't do that. How important is integrity of speech among God's people. And, 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 and why would that not be a characteristic that all of God's people should have in their life? That we say the truth, like in the, speaking the truth in love to one another. Not just speaking what is flattering to somebody else, or not just speaking what they want to hear to assuage the issue so that they stop thinking about it. But being full of integrity, speaking the truth in love to one another. Crucial qualification of deacons. 
That's a crucial qualification of somebody who's growing in maturity in Christ. How do you speak? Do your words line up with the truth of God's word, or are you speaking one way to one group of people and speaking another way to another group of people? How do we speak to one another? How do we speak to outsiders? Next spot is carryover from, from the, the parallel to pastors, not addicted to much wine. You have time for a 30-second rabbit trail? Maybe, maybe it's scratching an itch that's not even there. Uh, we'll, we'll touch on it again in a, in a couple of chapters when Paul instructs Timothy to take a little bit of wine for his stomach because he got this thing. And you might go, well, like, oh, so, so some wine, but not too much wine. So what do we do? How do we, how do we navigate the alcohol issue in Baptist church? And what does that all mean? 30 seconds, okay? This is my, and, and hear me on this. This is my 30 seconds of, of, of your pastor wrestling through this and coming to what I believe is a biblical uh, application for me. You might wrestle through and come to the same application. You might wrestle through and come to a slightly different one, but there are some principles that are the same no matter how you wrestle through it. Okay? So, number one, in the wrestling with alcohol issue. Number one, alcohol is not intrinsically evil, or drinking it is not intrinsically sinful. In other words, it is not wrong to drink alcohol. The Bible is overwhelmingly clear, however, that it is wrong to be drunk and be controlled by alcohol. Okay, so so hold those two things in. So not wrong to drink, wrong to be drunk. For me, so then taking those two things in common, is it wise? The next question would be then is if it's not wrong, but it's wrong to be drunk, is it wrong or right for me to drink? Everybody breathe real quick. Okay, ready for the, uh, it's going longer than 30 seconds. I'm sorry. So for me as your pastor, this is where I wrestle on this. I personally have chosen, I don't drink. And this is why. It's not wrong to drink. I don't mind if other people drink around me, to be quite frank with you. However, I don't drink because when other people, whether it's you or somebody in the community, were to see me drink, what would they think? They are not going to go in their mind, Pastor Zane is, oh, is drinking in moderation. He's not drinking to drunkenness. Outside of the fact that they, they would have to be able to see how much I drink every time I drink. But if they just see me at Rose Hours with, with my cart and they see alcohol in there, they go, oh, Pastor drinks? I can drink without any of the, those first two things in mind. All they see is, number one, drinking isn't wrong. They don't see, number two, drinking to drunkenness is always prohibited and wrong. Secondly, there are some people, uh, myself included, who have family histories of people who do have alcoholism. And to drink in front of them would be putting in front of them an obstacle that is unwise of me to put in their path. Because they, even if they chose to try to drink to moderation, they are given towards drinking to drunkenness. And so by life and example, it is just better for me not to drink. And then finally, the last one is just honestly, the question is, what do I gain or lose by drinking or not drinking? Drinking for me is an issue of like, I don't gain or lose anything, so it is better to just go, I'm not going to drink. And it doesn't cause anybody's conscience any difficulty. It doesn't cause anybody to wonder how they're drinking. And a second warning I would give you, just as far as as you navigate that, you go, okay, so drinking to drunkenness is not wrong. I guess I need to figure out what my limit is. You're probably approaching it with the wrong mentality. Which is also a scary reality there, is that you have no idea what your limit is. And you are potentially going, I, I think I'm going to flirt with this thing that might be prohibited in Scripture, but I want to see how close I can get so that I can go that far and no further. As soon as we start to navigate those issues, as far as it, with, if that's the mentality, how far can I go without crossing the line, 
we are usually going to find ourselves on the other side of the line more often than not. Whether it's alcohol, purity, like, you can go down the list of whatever it is. If, if our mentality is, I have freedom in Christ to do this, how close can I get without getting burnt? You're going to get burnt in the process. So it might be wiser to abstain. Anyway, that's my quick little thing. So it says deacons must not be addicted or uh, must not be drunkards. They must not be addicted to wine. And I didn't even touch on all of the, the, the context of how people drank in the New Testament. We can talk about that later if you want, um, about how their water is unclean and they had to dilute it with alcohol. There you go. I just gave it to you anyway. Um, <laughs> Different time, different story. But they're, they're, they're to be marked by not being controlled by anything but the Spirit of God. Right? So like the, 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 the contrast, of, uh, the, the picture that's painted within Scripture is, is controlled by wine or controlled by the Spirit. It's like not really a middle ground on that. So the deacons, those who are biblically qualified, ought to be free from addiction to wine. I would also add they should be free from addiction of any kind. Uh, it would be wise of them or, or wise of the church to have people who are, are controlled by the Spirit and not controlled by any other substance. Um, the next part, they should not be greedy for dishonest gain. And, and think about this again in terms of meeting physical needs within the church. In order to meet physical needs, what do deacons need? Resources, generally, right? So if they're greedy for dishonest gain, what is a great way to make quick money? Hey, I got to go fix this sink again. I need 100 bucks. Hey, this person's sink is broken. I need, a, I need 100 bucks. Right? So showing integrity in their handling of resources because they are dealing with people's real resources. Or maybe it's a situation where somebody needs something fixed and they're providing the resources and the deacon is the one who goes and buys it. Should they be somebody above reproach when it comes to finances if somebody says, here is, I need this, uh, uh, this is what you need for your house, I will go buy it for you. Don't you want to know that they're actually going to spend that on what they sent you for and not something else? Right? Important thing. Being above reproach, above board with their handling of money. Being honest with finances, good stewards, and trustworthy with resources because they're going to be entrusted with resources. Verse 9, you can put a little star next to this. This is, I think, the heart of the passage. Verse 9 and verse 13 going hand in hand together. What does this flow out of? Where do these characteristics come from? And I would say they, they, they must hold the mystery of the faith with a clear conscience. They hold their faith in Christ with a clear conscience. Right? Their faith in Christ, like the reason why they serve is a response to what Jesus has done for them, and they're serving out of a life transformed by Jesus. In order to be able to, to serve out of transformation of life that comes through knowing Jesus, it, it has to come through personal faith in Christ, and it has to come through personal faith in Christ that comes with a clear conscience. They're not wrestling with or doubting whether or not Jesus is who he says he is. They're not wrestling with or doubting whether or not Jesus will be faithful to the things that Jesus has said he will be faithful about. Now, if we stop right there, wouldn't we want that for every single member of the body of Christ? That they would hold to their faith in Christ with a clear conscience, with a sincere faith, with a depth of, they know who they are in Christ, and they know who Jesus is with confidence. That would be pretty good, wouldn't it? We want to disciple people to a place where they are confident in who they are in Christ. And it feeds into, it waterfalls over into verse 10 that they should be tested first. And tested in what context? And I would say they should be tested in their faith and tested in their service. But it says that they can serve as deacons if they prove themselves blameless. Blameless in what? Say so blameless in their faith. 
Their faith floods over into action, which I would argue that faith is always action. Belief is intellectual. Faith is belief in action. I'm actually putting hands and feet to what I believe. And so their faith is tested. That's why in Acts chapter 6 they could say, Find us men who are of good reputation, full of the Spirit, and full of wisdom. They, like we know them. They're examined. They're known entities. They're known commodities. We know who they are. Like we've seen their faith. We've seen their faith under difficult circumstances. They've been, like they, they haven't, they're, they're not without any life experience in Christ. They can speak about how their faith in Christ impacts their life, but you can also see how their faith in Christ impacts their life. Their, their personal faith is proven through life circumstances. And like I said in Acts chapter 6, the seven seemed like they, they chose them fairly simply. They, they knew. Even early on, they could see the work of God's Spirit in these guys. And it says, if they, if they, if you, if you, in your observation of them, they're faithful, and there's nothing to hold on to. Again, that idea of blameless, nothing to grab hold of. Then let them serve as deacons. In verse eleven, and we're gonna, we're moving kind of quick, I guess. But uh, real quick note on verse eleven: we could probably faithfully translate this in one of two ways. There's two ways you could you could translate this. One is their wives, so deacons' wives. The second one could be the women also, who serve as deacons. Now, as a church, we fall on the side of, we, 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 uh, we to this point in our history, and, and probably moving forward, and I say probably because, hey, wrestling through faithfulness to Scripture. When we look at men who are qualified, we also look at their family. <laughs> And and and, you, and and this is why I think their wives is a, a good translation on this front, is that the wives also must be dignified. Not slanderers. Now again, if you think about this in terms of men who are coming alongside of and meeting physical needs within the church. They go home and they talk about their day or their ministry in their home setting. Can you imagine... If on the flip side of that, their wife then gets on the phone and tells everybody, hey, so-and-so's got this problem. So-and-so's got this problem. And it's not always the truth. The word slanderers is actually from the same root as devil. Deceit. Telling non-truths. Now, whether that is for uh, women deacons or deaconesses or their wives, what it is calling for is an absence of gossip and slander about the situation that other people in the church are in. Now, not not asking for a raise of hands, but how difficult is that little pet hidden sin to represent people not fully in light of the truth, but based off of what we think we know? And how quickly do we share what we think we know? And how quickly do we portray someone as how we think they are? And so those who serve as deacons and their wives must be without like without blame, nothing to hang on to in the way that they speak about and speak this goes right back to the heart right of not double tongued. And we've all been there before when someone has said wonderful things to our face and then turn around and we find out, wow, they say horrible things behind my face. I guess that'd be my back. 
doesn't feel great, does it? I know, does it? I was like, there's a, we have a figure of speech for that, actually. Yeah, how about that? English, it's fun. Doesn't, like, that doesn't feel great, does it? And then how, how, how much do you want to openly share with that person who double speaks behind your back in the future? Or do you kind of go, no, I think I'll hold this to the vest. How am I doing? I'm doing fine. Maybe a hard question. Uh, well, first of all, may, uh, I'll step on a toe. Let's step on a toe. Everybody put your foot out and we'll step on a toe really quick. If within the church you ask people how they're doing and their answer is always, I'm fine, it might would be that they have experienced people who take whatever their real problem is they shared and then they mischaracterize it to other people and all of a sudden, hey, I heard this is going on in your life. I didn't talk to you about that. How did you know? Have you ever been there? Has it, and don't raise your hand, has it ever led you to say, I'm fine rather than this is where I'm really at? If within the church we cannot share our real burdens with people because as soon as we share our real burdens with them, everyone else knows about them and doesn't even know the whole truth about them, we will find ourselves to be an incredibly shallow people who do not tell each other the truth. Do not gossip or slander. It is horrible in the Lord's sight. And it kills the intimacy of the body, the real ministry of the body to itself. Do not do it. Are we people whose mouths are blameless in the way that we speak about and to one another? You can put your toes back in now. Deacons are also required and their wives are required to be sober-minded and faithful in all things. Faithfulness in Christ and it displayed in their lives, which waterfalls right into, again, the, the provision for their, their pure in their marriages. Uh, let deacons each be the faith, husband of one wife, they're faithful in marriage, or they're pure outside of marriage. Like if they're single, they're pure in their, in their singleness. Managing their children in their own households well. Again, similar to the pastoral provision we looked at last week, that they ought to be leading well in their homes. How do their children speak about them? How do they parent? How do they, how do they interact as a family? Is, is faithfulness to Christ evident in their family? That's required. Like if, if the, Similar to if the pastor doesn't uh, minister well or, or manage his own household well, how can he serve the church well? If a deacon doesn't serve well in his home, how can he? Like, if he doesn't meet physical needs within his home, how could he meet physical needs within the body? Right? Or if he doesn't show care for the, the members of his own household, how could he show care and concern for the rest of the body? Similar train of thought there. And then verse 13, as we, as we kind of wrap it up, tie a bow on this, he says, for those who serve well as deacons, and, and that phrase could actually be, for those who deacon well. Right? Because serve and deacon are kind of the same word. For those who deacon well gain a good standing for themselves and also great confidence in the faith that is in Christ Jesus. I don't think Paul is sanctifying the, uh, a selfish, like, ooh, I will get a good name for myself if I do this. That's why I want to be a deacon. I don't think that's what he's getting at. But I think even more important is, is that, that, that they're required to have a good reputation going in, but they gain a good reputation as they serve well. When they serve with integrity, when they serve in maturity and faith, and when they display godly wisdom, it is seen and it is recognized, earning good standing for themselves. But also, it is raising the barometer. I don't think necessarily the great confidence in the faith is only for the deacons, but also those to whom the deacon is serving. 
the whole body grows in its confidence and faith. When we look and we see people using their God-given gifts and talents in service to the Lord and service to others, it raises confidence in the work that God is doing in the whole. And so that might be another question that we would ask is why, why serve in any capacity? Whether it's as a deacon or why use the gifts that God has given? Why should I do that? And oftentimes, the the need is usually posed as we have this need and you're an able-bodied person or seem to be. You, You have a heartbeat, so come on in and serve. But what if our view of service was, in my service, I am leading people to a greater confidence of who Jesus is? For the for the, the seven in Acts chapter six, when we distribute bread and we do it with integrity, with good reputation, and we take care of people and we honor the Lord in this, it increases all of these people's confidence in who Jesus is. It is leading people to a greater faith in Jesus, a greater dependence on Jesus. It is leading me in serving. It is putting me in a situation where I have to depend on and cling to Jesus in order to do this thing. Rather than, well, I served because somebody asked me to and I felt guilty. Well, I served because I need to check off this list of volunteer hours for my probation officer. Just kidding. But maybe seriously. Um, That we could do some legalistic check mark on it rather than I'm responding out of my faith in Christ and I'm seeking to help other people's faith in Christ grow as well. And then we ask the question, how do how do I know what service is? And I want to just uh, really quickly uh, go to Philippians chapter 2. You can write down Matthew chapter 20, verses 25 through 28 as well. You can go back and read that. Um, Jesus is uh, talking to his disciples in Matthew chapter 20. They're vying for position of, of honor in his midst. And he says the, the ones, uh, like basically anybody who, who serves uh, will be elevated, and the ones who want to exalt themselves will be brought low. Um, but in Philippians chapter 2, you go, why, why serve? Um, Philippians chapter 2, and, and I'm, I'm not going to really um, comment a ton on this, but just hear what Paul says to this church. In Philippi, and I, what I believe that the Lord would say to our church as well. If there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, Any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. In other words, if if we have participated with Jesus in any way, if we've experienced the work of the Holy Spirit in any way, have the same mind, the same love, being in full accord, one of mind. But then notice verse 3. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. And then our immediate question would be like, why would I do that? I think the answer is in verse 5 and following. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. But he emptied himself by taking the form of a servant and being born in the likeness of men. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, 
and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Now, if, if Jesus stepped out of heaven and into a lowly body of flesh in service of us, what service would be too far beneath us that we would not do? What act of service could we possibly be asked to do by Jesus that would be beneath us if the God of the universe, eternal Son of God, humbled himself, first of all by taking on flesh, and then going to death and even death on a humiliating death on a cross to bring us to himself? We serve because we have seen what service is from the God of the universe. And if service is a four-letter word to us, then I, I question whether or not we really understand the heart of the God who saved us. If we can't find it in our heart to serve somebody around us, if you look around the room, you go, I, I don't think of a possible way I could serve any one of these people. Could you imagine that Jesus died for you? Like, how come we can grapple with that? Like, that, that although we were dead in our sins and unworthy of Jesus serving us, he stooped down and, and, and debased himself to die for us. So then what would be beneath us? What could possibly be beneath us as God's people in service? Rather, if we are participating with him, with and, and, and I love that Paul says, complete my joy. There is a joy in serving one another. There is a joy in pouring ourselves out for the needs and the concerns of the people around us. There is a joy in seeing others growing in their confidence in the faith that is in Christ Jesus. There is a joy that comes in sharing and caring for the burdens of others in our midst. There is a joy that comes through ministering for one another in the midst of our lowest moments. And if we can only imagine joy in Christ when we are on a mountaintop being served, then we have missed who and what we are supposed to be about as God's people. So what is my view of service of others? Is it a joy-filled, how can I pour out willingly, joyfully back because of all that Jesus has done for me? Not because of what the other person deserves, but because of what Jesus has done for me already. Or is it, what do I get out of this? Well, how could I possibly benefit from this? What is my view of service? Is my service transformed because of how Jesus has entered in and drastically, radically changed me? Or is something else motivating it?